so much of it right now is how do we activate the the average American to understand the choices and the behavior that they have today and how they can actually go capture a healthy life tomorrow. Hi, and welcome to HIMSCast. I'm Susan Morse, Executive Editor of Healthcare Finance News. We are talking today with Andy Davis, who is Principal for Deloitte Consulting's Healthcare Practice. Welcome, Andy. Thanks, Susan. Appreciate uh, being here. Yeah, great to have you here. I wanted to talk to you about the report that you recently authored called How Employers Can Spark a Movement to Live Longer, Healthier Lives. And can you please talk about this report? Because I'm sure it's something everybody would be interested in. Yeah. And, and, and Susan, I wouldn't be a, an actuary if I didn't tell you how the report came about. Then uh, some of the findings, I think, are profound. So we uh, what we did is we looked at um, the major causes of death and mortality within the U.S. We actually accounted for 70% of the deaths within the U.S., um, all of them are related to healthcare issues uh, across 10 different disease states or carry states. Um, and working with our life actuarial teams, we can map all of those things out to different you know, mortality tables by age. And then we looked at a couple of things that are really important, or I should say five factors, uh, lifestyle and behavior, and what are the drivers that lead to mortality, uh, health access and quality, um, environments and everything that's around you that can drive uh, your re reason for death. Um, genetics, uh, and then non-modifiable things like age. Um, and then we took a look at some, I'm a part of our future of health practice. And with those five factors in mind, with our reasons for death there, we said, what can we influence? Um, what can Americans gain if we can influence that? And that's how we got to the results. Um, and what's interesting in a, in a time period where over the last year and a half, our average lifespan in the U.S. has gone down from 78 to 76 now. Uh, what our report shows is if, if we can embrace uh, change, uh, especially as you think about behavior modification and catching disease states early, um, everyone can live to 90. And I think that's a that's a really interesting and, and I think profound finding, but it's actually not the most uh, interesting thing that we were able to surface out because we didn't just look at mortality, we looked at how people are living their lives. So we called health span within the paper and um, what we found is the average person today is going to school and they're going to work. And if you assume the average age is 65, I like to use the term, they get injected into retirement, uh, into, into a place that is isn't unhealthy. It's, it's, a, it, it's an unhealthy lifestyle, an unhealthy way to live. They're not living the, to their capability. And what our report found is, is not only can you, you know, work and, and be healthy, but you can have 20 years on the other side of 65 that you can actually live a healthy, productive lifestyle, do the things that you want to do. And that, to me, that's the finding, right? Because that's where people get to play pickleball. They get to play with their great grandkids, not just see them or know them, but play with them. And and to me, that's the exciting part of what our report was able to surface out. Well, there's a lot in there. So um, as they say, unpacking it, what I've heard is some things can be changed by individuals. Some things cannot be. Your genetics are inherited, so you can't change that. A lot of things in the environment can't be changed, but there are many behavioral things that can be changed. Is this the you you, you indicated? There's a big factor out of this. What was the biggest thing that came out of this for you? Yeah, you know, um, 
I thought as we were digging, I, I like to debunk my own hypothesis. I actually thought that um, we would we would find that it was like science and innovation that was going to be able to help us capture all of these years. That being a part of our future health practice, it's about early stage diagnostics and finding cancer early and curative therapies. Um, what's interesting is most of the uh, health span that we have in front of us is actually, you know, we don't have science, we don't require innovation. It's actually there right now. Um, we had an example where you, we had one of our uh, clinicians within Deloitte and he was um, sharing stories around how you can be essentially a type two diabetic. Um, and with the right behavior modifications and lifestyle choices, uh, you can walk back into a normal and healthy lifestyle and and not be encumbered by some of the the complications that come with type 2 diabetes. And that's not science or innovation that's years away. That's education and health literacy that sits in front of us. And I think that's, to me, that was the biggest finding is that it's so much of this sits within lifestyle and behavior. And, and so much of it right now is how do we activate the, the average American to understand the choices and the behavior that they have today and how they can actually go capture a healthy life tomorrow. Well, how can that be done, Andy? Because um, I hear so much about, you know, of course, employers want their employees to be healthy, uh, not just for productive uh, employees, but longer lifespans, as you say. And yet so many people already know if I stop smoking, that'll help. If I, you know, lose weight, that'll help. Yet we're not doing it. So how can people be motivated to do the right thing? Yeah, I'm going to, there's, there's an interesting thing around, around that. And um, I'll pause and take a second because I know what I want to say. Uh, I think the biggest thing is the fact that we don't have line of sight into the insights that are driving health, healthy lifespan and the choices. So um, this science around the fact that uh, having a, uh, uh, you know, drinking isn't, isn't healthy for you, right? Um, whether that's for, you know, your neurological reasons, cardiovascular, a whole bunch of things. But the, the impact of me on a day-to-day -day basis, if I do choose to have a drink is uh, minimal on the next day and I actually don't understand the long-term implications. I don't have science, data, or insights that actually tells me that. I have studies, but no studies that actually personalize it to the impact that I'm having on my body. So I do think there is a a connection we have to be able to make with real-time sensing around how is our body reacting to the choice that we're making. It's not that you're going to reinforce everyone to make the perfect, perfect and healthiest choices. Um, I, I also don't believe that that is a, a, a great way to live because sometimes that takes the fun out of everything that we would want to do. But I'm then making an active choice about am I choosing to do this because I have other reasons that are beneficial in my life, which by the way, can drive mental mental well-being because I'm enjoying what I'm doing uh, against some of the negatives that are happening. And right now we don't have the insights there. So we tend to always lean on one side versus the other. And I think when we can power some of the wearables and analytics that bring real-time insights to the what you're doing to your body, I think that's really important. And using a non, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's called, uh, uh, example around drinking, but if you think about the the implications of of running every day, science would tell you running every day is healthy. Uh, I mean, that's what the article would say. Um, and that's what science would tell you. It's exercise and you should be doing that. Um, 
What you can't tell is, are you? do you have an inflamed knee that day? You're actually doing damage to your knee that it would actually be helpful for you today, take a day of rest, not run three miles, so that you could run more effectively tomorrow and not do joint damage that you don't recognize in that moment, but you might be creating five years down the road. And so when we talk about real-time analytics and, and wearable knee sleeves, which they have right now, um, how do you integrate that so you're helping uh, an individual, what I'll call a consumer and not a patient, make a choice, which we just can't do really well today. What you're talking about, what I'm hearing you say, Andy, is getting the word out to these people, either through uh, digital connections or otherwise. Um, and of course, all of these choices ends up costing the healthcare system. Um, you said in the report that healthcare spending has been growing annually with a rate of 4.2% in 2021. And of course, we all want to bring down those costs and 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 reduce reduce these unnecessary costs, what is on providers and payers to do this? How can they best get the message out to consumers of, you know, here's the the consequences of actions or choose A, not B or something? I'm not sure how you would put it. Yeah. That. I mean, I I think a, a, a few things for uh, for providers and payers, I think the mechanisms around value-based care are a place to start because value-based care does help you think about how do I manage uh, the care that isn't needed or manage it most effectively. Um, I still actually think we have a lot to work through in our models because health insurers, and you think about the cycle time for members, is short. Um, and so paying for prevention um, is sometimes a really hard thing to demonstrate ROI. And and what you saw probably in the paper as well, and, and for your listeners, that is one of the reasons why we believe it's so important to activate uh, employers, because employers own the risk of so many individuals. They're self-insured or fully insured. That's you know 150 plus million individuals that are that are covered under employer-sponsored care. Um, and prevention doesn't happen when you have disease at 70. It happens at 20, 25, 30, 35, when you're making those choices. And um, I could use Deloitte as an organization, which I'm, I'm privileged to be, you know, work at Deloitte. And I think they work on not just what is the healthcare, but we have a well-being subsidy that allows us to make choices for the things that uh, impact my my health status, things like fitness, but also my mental and social well-being, things like uh, if I want to invest in solar panels. Um, or I want to invest and build a garden. And so those types of elements would drown out someone's well-being, I think are ways where a, a provider and a payer are going to have a hard time doing that. An employer who deals with that workforce and has a connective tissue into their workforce, their employees, it can really help influence the healthy choices that an individual may make. Do the benefits package is what you're saying. You can really, sure. yeah. Yeah, I think so, through, you know, both health related benefits and through alternative benefits, which is how Deloitte, how Deloitte has done that. And I think it's it's one of the most talked about benefits that we have um, because it is an investment into an individual person. And it's not it's not saying here's what you do. It's saying here are options and manage your own well-being. And I and I love that about it because it's it's choice and I can personally figure out how to how to best manage that benefit and, and make myself happier, uh, both emotionally and physically. Um, I want to raise something in the report that surprised me. It said, um, Americans change their health insurance company about every 18 to 30 months, and that this is a barrier 
to everyone getting healthier. I don't know the connection with that. I'm wondering if you can explain that. Ah, it's, um, if you think about how long someone stays in an insurance company, so that the tenure that you laid out there, um, it's really hard to invest in some of the things that are high cost. And I'll use a couple of examples because let's talk about curative therapies. Um, so there's products in the market today that can give uh, children eyesight or blind. Um, they're very expensive. Uh, the ROI on giving someone eyesight, you don't capture within 18 to 30 months. You capture it over the lifetime of that child who now has the ability to see. Um, products like curing hemophilia is another great example. The, the cost benefit of that, it takes five to 10 years to recoup what might be the expected cost of some of these curative therapy. I mean, you're changing someone's life. But for an insurance company, um, right now, especially in the US, there aren't financial mechanisms to recoup that cost. Um, unless you have that member. And so member retention, again, using health plan terms, because their members at that point become a critical uh, um, factor in whether or whether or not they're going to say yes. And I, I talk with a lot of organizations that bring new innovations, new therapies, uh, whether it's biopharma and med tech um, into the market. And it's it's how do you really capture the ROI so that insurance can see that their investment is worth it, right? And it doesn't just stop at like things that are curative, um, cancer diagnostics are another great example. There is a company that has uh, a blood test out there that can test for 50 different cancer indications. Um, if you look at the cost of that, uh, it could seem significant if you provide that to every employee. But is there a break-even point uh, where maybe for everyone 50 and older, that's step one. Instead of going and getting a high-cost image, maybe you're doing a blood test to see if there's a likelihood of cancer, one of these 50 indications, and then you go to get the high cost imaging. And I think that return on investment is something that we're still trying to figure out. How do you make it work for insurers, knowing that they're regulated? Um, well, knowing that we have to invest in the science. Um, but we haven't figured out that art yet, um, because I and, and the science and the math and how all of that works. But I, it's a part of the conversation I'm having with uh, the organizations I get to work with every day. Um, interesting, and I want to hear more about that as as you work with them. Um, I hope in in a few months or a year, Andy. But before we go, I want to talk about how this relates to health equity, um, because I hear and you were talking about ROI, about health systems that are building housing, investing in housing for individuals uh, who have need of it, because the social determinants of health is such a huge thing in getting people healthy and you can't treat them for their condition if they don't have safe housing or access to food. And it just seems like providers and payers are somehow having to take a lot of responsibility for what happens uh, with health equity. And CMS recently came out with a new health equity index and is saying to Medicare Advantage payers, um, this is going to become part of store, star ratings starting in 2026, and that's a huge deal to be able to measure what you're doing with health equity. Is there any way to measure this of the effectiveness of the role that providers and payers and employers have in ensuring uh, these individuals are having their needs met? Yeah, uh, I, I think it's the hardest thing to um, showcase and, and prove that an event never happened. 
right? Uh, and I think that's what you're seeing. And as we start to see investment into and like how ROI is so hard to capture, I think the role around around health equity and the investment that that you're starting to see, um, and and we had we had published some work around this last year around the the waste that sits in our system around health equity, which is about three hundred twenty billion dollars today. Um, it it continues to grow actually higher than the rate of healthcare expenditures um, by 2040 to a trillion dollars. And if you look at that, um, as a payer, um, as a provider, um, and anyone providing health-related services, there is it's not just the best thing to do because it's the, the most human thing to do to invest into our society and, and try to bridge the gap for health equity. There's actually a business case to say that if you invest in health equity, we can lower the cost of care and as an insurer and a payer, um, as an employer, um, investing in to try to bridge that gap for health equity can be a huge way to drive premiums down, drive the cost of care down. And, and hopefully for an employer, you're doing two things. You're enhancing the well-being of your workforce and you're managing one of the most expensive line items on your benefit that's above and beyond salary. And so to to me, that that's why you've seen such a shift. And it's not just the healthcare treatment that I have to figure out. If someone can't afford a car or have transportation to go see a provider, it it doesn't matter if I have the best doctors in my network or not. I need to be able to get them there. And that's what I think everyone's starting to recognize is that it's it's so much bigger than the the individual role that you play. And if we really want to eliminate that waste, we're going to have to invest into different things above and beyond and outside of our ecosystem. And I take it that will result in longer lives. And uh, uh, you said living to 90. Okay. So I'm going to hit you with this question that um, before we go, other than, you know, you could tell me run three miles every day, uh, you know, cut down on carbs or don't smoke, limit one drink a day. What is, was there one surprising thing that stood out to you where we can all live to 90 that, that maybe from the report, maybe you weren't expecting? Yeah, uh, boy, if I were going to, the one thing that you, that it's science has shown it's hard to walk away from is, is drinking habits. And so, uh, what was interesting about the findings we had, we actually had debates, Susan, on our team about, um, how, how modifiable, uh, or how much risk can you eliminate if you stop doing something? Smoking, great example. Smoking is a great example of the argument that we would have is, well, if you have you smoked a long time ago, there is no way that you can get back to healthy status. And she proved with research literature, our clinical practice, that um, you can get back to what is a normal mortality for for almost everything. There's one exception to that. Um, within uh, anywhere between two to 10 years, depending on the disease that drives it, a propensity for smoke. smoking. Um, the one area where you can't reduce the risk potent, like fully is lung cancer, which makes sense, uh, but you can actually cut your mortality down by a half. Um, there's a lot of things. We did it for exercise and diet and like you can change your behavior right now and make a difference in your healthy life um, and and walk away from that. Drinking is the is the hardest thing to actually uh, walk away from and, and be able to modify. So I, as I look at this, that was... It was interesting to know where behavior change and a change of lifestyle could have a real impact versus you really have to make a hard choice at like what you're what you're choosing to do and the impacts. 
Andy, thank you for letting me put you on the spot with that last That's question. All right. All right, I love uh, it. A great answer, though, uh, uh, and interesting to hear. Um, thank you so much for joining HIMSCast. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, thank you, Susan. Thanks for having us and, and excited uh, for your audience to hear this, too.